welcome everyone and thank you so so much for coming out to the liminal space launch party this book has been the amalgamation of the efforts of over 40 u of a students it has taken us almost a year and a half to complete and we are so 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 proud of it and we're so happy that you guys came so to start off i just want to do an opening acknowledgement so we the crew would like to acknowledge that this anthology was created curated and distributed in amiskasi wiskigan treaty six territory and metis region four the ancestral lands of the cree Sutsina, blackfoot and metis we respectfully acknowledge that we are living and creating on land that's been unlawfully stolen from those who've been its custodians since time immemorial. And we would like to pay respect to these resilient indigenous peoples whose knowledge, experiences, histories, cultures, traditions, and languages continue to enrich our communities in the face of ongoing settler colonialism. So the Creative Writing Club has functioned as a place for student writers to come together, socialize, and to share their passion with other students at the University of Alberta campus. And writing is really hard, um, especially as students, we are in a transitional period in our lives and sharing something as personal as writing can be really scary. But when you have a community who is in the exact same boat as you, it becomes a little bit easier. And like the club, this anthology was not created in a vacuum. We all relied on each other for guidance and for support. So in that case, we would like to extend a few thank yous. Thank you to our editing team, Aisha Ahmed, Gillian Hebert, Grace Broadhead, Jonas Liu, Kaijun Ma, T.A. Campbell, Veronica Esty, and Vivian Poon. To the staff of the English and Film Studies Department, who graciously allowed us, me, to take up their time talking about the anthology and the crew and to annoy them with my many emails and my many classroom talks. Thank you to Jason Lee Norman, Sean Hamm, and Bolo Tai, whose wisdom has been invaluable for first-hand anthology runners to the English and Film Studies Department, Oasis, Rising Youth, Taking It Global for granting us funds to help us create this vision and bring it to light, and to Marnoush Zaydabadi, who is our amazingly, wonderfully talented graphic designer who helped make the book look as beautiful as it does. And our biggest thank you is to you, all of our readers, and everyone in the audience tonight, because you're who this was for, and we hope that you enjoy it as much as we do. With that, I want to get into what the crew is about and how this came to be. And so for that, I'm going to interview our president, EJ. Say hi, EJ. Hello. Hello. So you have been, you've been the president of the crew for three Don't years say now, it. right? Don't say it. Oh, God. No. Yeah, I have. <laughs> you say I've it like it's a bad thing. No, it's reminding me of how long I've been an undergrad. <laughs> <laughs> Time well spent, I think. I can say that, right? 100%. So in those three years, how have things changed? What was like the, the most significant change that you've noticed? Uh, just to make it clear, I didn't start the club. Uh, there were two ladies from the science uh, faculty. Their names were Megan and Anna. They were science students, but they couldn't do creative writing classes. So instead, instead of do going there, they started their own club to substitute that. And a lot of it was just gathering their friends to come together and write. For the earlier years of the club, the place was mostly just a come here, they play music, and you just write. By the time I came along, the club was still quite small, and we were writing and talking here and there. And over the years, as I've taken on like the exec role, the club has spread to doing guest lecture talks with local Edmonton writers, editors, and authors, such as the editors from OnSpec, which is like the local sci-fi mag here, uh, to also having professors such as Ruth Dyke-Faderow, 
as well as having Jason Purcell and Nisha Patel, who's the poet laureate of Edmonton, just having all these awesome people come by and just share their experiences. And now it's grown to actually being a place where students can get published, and that's a wonderful thing. Imagine just come to a club, learn, have a place where you can talk and practice your writing, but also maybe potentially get your piece of writing in an actual book. I think that's pretty cool. It's definitely been a place for growth and an opportunity for growth too. Like I know just having been there and everyone's very open to new ideas. I think I came to you and the other execs and said, hey, why don't we do a trope talk? Please give me an excuse to rant about the fan family trope for an hour. (laughs) And you were like, yeah, go for it. And we continue to grow and it's wonderful to see. Like we have a podcast now. No, it's been, it's been wonderful just seeing how much we're growing and continue to grow. So then in the beginnings of the club or when you were there, like how was it that the anthology was first conceptualized? In, in my own words, in, in truth, a lot of the old execs kept mentioning that McEwen had a club that did that. And I won't lie, the first time I heard it, I'm like, that's a lie. Students making, publishing their own book, what? But it was true. Uh, there is a club over at McEwen called Bolotai, who, is, who was founded by Sean Hamm, as we mentioned earlier. They formed their writing club out of the basis of actually publishing, whereas our club was formed more as a gathering place for people who couldn't get into the creative writing program. I should also preface, at the time, the writing program was also closed off. You actually had to get a portfolio that was approved by a prof to get in. Now it's much more open, but still, that was just a, just for context for why the club was made again. But yeah, the, the idea was always tossed around, but for a reason, a lot of the people in the club were mostly science students, and they were kind of daunted by the idea of actually publishing. But, you know, over time, more and more people from different faculties and absolutely art faculty started coming in and the desire kept growing. So last year, I sort of just said, all right, uh, let's do this. We've been sort of tossing this idea around. I knew it would be pain. It was. It gave me slight panic attacks when I was like, oh my God, we're actually going to do this. But we pushed through, we charged through, we talked to a lot of people about how this would kind of need to be, need to get done. And we sort of stumbled our way through, but hey, now we're here. I I do remember like September last year being like, do you guys want to make a book? And all just being like, yeah, how do we do that? I don't know. And then we just kind of figured out how to do that, stumbling our way through. But we did it, and now we're, we're all the wiser. Is it what you imagined it would be? Like, if you could go back in time and tell, like, EJ in his first year as exec, hey, you're going to make a book, and it's going to look like this, and it's going to be full of all of these amazing people. Like, what would your younger self say? He'd be blown away, like 100%. He'd be blown away. The fact that we were able to string this together and everything just fit. The poems, the, the short fiction, the flash fiction, like all the pieces, the nonfiction too, they all kind of glued together. And if you read them just as like one straight line, I was sort of just surprised. And I was like, wow, there's, there's kind of a pacing that I really enjoyed. And the fact that we got an absolutely wonderful graphic designer that was just able to like make great illustration and then we found like an awesome printer and a lot of these other resources that helped us just get this out. Like it's honestly way more than I, than I thought of, like thought we could do. Also, mm-hmm. just the amount of people that submitted at the time, I was like blown away. Like, wow, that many people are interested in the student anthology here? Because we honestly didn't know. We were like, what if the execs are the only ones who submit? Like, what if no one else like cares? And I, I will say I did harass some of my classmates, like to shake them down and be like, you need to submit because I believed in y'all. So if I talked to you and you were a former classmate of mine and I just like did the equivalent of like grabbing your shoulders and being like, submit! It's because I believed in you and and here we are. I also have to, sorry for all my old classmates that kept having me do, like I kept doing classroom talks with the same few of my classes. 
Sorry if I kept eating up the time in the beginning of class. I think I made a joke when I actually dropped the books off at Glass Bookshop and I met COVID safely with Matthew to give him the books. I said like that meme of the duck waddling forward. It's like me on my way to annoy Jason and Matthew in the English department at school. But I mean, it, it clearly it paid off. Yeah, the, the end product is like far more than I could have ever expected. We will get on to the main event of the show, which is some of the author readings. The Some of the authors of the anthology are here in this chat tonight, and they have graciously offered to read their work that is featured in this book to you. So we are going to start with our first reader of the night. And it is Neha Vashtest. So Neha is a third-year psychology student at the University of Alberta. Her poetry has been featured in anthologies for the National Poetry Institute of Canada, Polar Express Publishing, and the City of Edmonton Poetry Moves on Transit. In 2017, she wrote and directed a one-act play called It Takes a Woman, advocating for gender equality and expressing the trauma acid attack survivors endure. In her free time, you can find her watching movies with family, curling up with a good book and a cup of chai, or dancing in the kitchen. Neha could not be with us here tonight, but she sent in a recording of her poem. Take it away, Neha. The Waiting Room. She hops up and down beside the chair, holding her mom's hand. The carefree child in the hospital waiting room. A pool of life, overflowing as the pools of those around her, slowly drain. I ponder this paradox. Some dry up, while others drown in their own. All around her, heartbeats cease, pain radiates, lungs gasping for air. She gives her baby brother a kiss on his plump, rosy cheek. Everyone smiles, and for a moment, sparks of nostalgia slow dance and waltz in spirals across the room. Time stops, breaths held, stolen moments returned. Thanks, everyone. This poem is based off of my experience sitting in a hospital waiting room, so I hope you enjoyed. Thank you so much for that, Neha. That was excellent. Our next reader for the night is Erica Kohler. Erica graduated in the spring of 2020 with a major in psychology and a minor in English. Poetry has been an emotional outlet for her over the years, especially during difficult personal events. As well, Erica could not be with us here tonight, but she has sent in a recording of her poem, Childhood Sword. I got that childhood sword on hip, the one I brought on every trip. Belonged to myth and legend, her name religion destined. Someone worse and better than me, something cursed and blessed by the seaside French single-story home, salted skin with hair uncombed. In cold water as colder heart develops, before Polaroid filters made me jealous of a fiction figment with green pigment eyes, unusual and tongue malignant, who grows old and wise and settles, along with all her heavy metals, peacefully drinking tea and hoping that she'll join me. Thank you. Thank you for that, Erica. That was lovely. Our next reader for the night is Brayden Randall. So Brayden is a first year after degree student in the Faculty of Education at the U of A, having completed his English degree there in 2018. His interest in writing started in high school, writing short spy thrillers and song lyrics. In 2017, he traveled to the International University of Ireland, Maynooth, to study creative writing. His literary influences include Neil Peart, Leonard Cohen, Brett Easton Ellis, James Joyce, and David Foster Wallace. When he's not writing, he enjoys music, skiing, kite surfing, motocross, and yelling at the referees at Oilers games. Take it away, Braden. Alrighty, so 
I'll just read the first page from my story, Cherry Pie Guy. Bright lights flash and smoke erupts from the stage as the bassist pounds a rift that melts the faces in the front row. And the drummer smashes a beat that has even the casino goers at the slots outside banging their heads like it's 1989. From the second level, I can see the women with giant heads of hair dancing while their husbands who donned Harley Davidson t-shirts drank cheap beer. Warrant was in the zone that night and doing their best to turn the Wild Horse Pass Hotel and Casino in Chandler, Arizona into the Troubadour Bar on the Sunset Strip in LA during the glam metal era. As they finished playing Uncle Tom's Cabin, a drunk guy who was obviously only there to see the next act, Skid Row, yells, play Cherry Pie. The singer who replaced the Cherry Pie guy in 2008 flashes a dangerous rock star grin and says, we'll get there, and the audience cheers. Eric Turner, the rhythm guitarist and founder of the band, steps forward and plays the intro riff to 32 Pennies, and the drunk dude sits down. With his sunglasses on and dark surfer-length hair, I focus on Eric Turner and take mental notes of how he picks the strings as he plays, the way he dominates the crowd in front of him. I imagine living, living on a lighted stage as fans cheer my, my own band's name like we are for Eric. I shift my focus back to the singer. The words aren't his own, but he sings them in a way that does justice to the cherry pie guy. Dancing with my shadow and I let my shadow lead. If I die with a penny in my pocket, well, I guess that's all I need. Thank you. So I noticed in the bio that you had given and within the piece itself, like you seemed like very influenced by music. So what do you find about music that is inspiring or that influence your writing? I think I like poetry on its own, but having the music behind it just kind of gives it that extra bit of emotion. And it gives it kind of gives you that own, that emotional response. And even as a baby, um, my parents have stories of in car rides, they'd be playing Enya or something like that. And then as soon as the song would end, I'd start crying until the next song came on. I've kind of always had this love for music that's kind of been around since before I could even express words. And I think my, my, all my big influences from music like Neil Peart from Rush and Leonard Cohen, they're very poetic in all their lyrics. And all their lyrics have multiple different meanings or just kind of deeper meanings than a lot of other songs out there. So it was really music that kind of got me interested in pulling emotion from just words. I think that's always interesting to find like how words are crafted in multiple kinds of genres of writing because music isn't necessarily what you think of when you think of writing, but it definitely has like a profound impact on how we think and how we see things. Mm -hmm. So yeah, thank you. Yeah, no worries. Our next reader is Megan Kostrowski. Megan is starting her fourth year of study at the University of Alberta. She is planning to graduate with a Bachelor of Arts degree, majoring in psychology with a minor in creative writing. Megan attended Leakey School of Dancing in Edmonton for 15 years, and the story of Death of a Star was inspired by her desire to capture the moment when a dancer's career comes to an end. Hello. <laughs> okay, I'll just start. The first thing I notice is the absence of the backstage symphony, the thrum of the music, the shuffling feet, the hushed whispers, the sporadic bouts of clapping and laughter from the audience. The floor always vibrated slightly, and you could feel it through the soles of your shoes, the energy traveling up your legs and resonating throughout your whole body. I remember how my nerves would tingle as I peeked around the curtain and saw a sea of unfamiliar faces, my bladder screaming that it was full but it would be too late for a bathroom run. The stage was calling. Now an hour after the show, the entire place is empty. 
It feels like walking into an abandoned city. The air is still, the silence deafening. I walk towards center stage and I brush my hand across the curtain, its soft fabric caressing my skin like a lover bidding me farewell. My ballet slippers whisper against the wood with, with each step and I close my eyes because I know the way by heart. I lift my chin to the balcony and the stage lights illuminate the backs of my eyelids, casting them in a warm yellow glow. Looking down is forbidden. You must trust your body knows where the edge of the stage is. You must trust that you won't fall. I imagine that the seats are full, with my mother sitting in the very center and I start to move, muscle memory taking over. My teacher used to stop the music partway through our routine so that we would learn to keep dancing without it. Over time, the music burrowed its way under my skin, nestling deep within me. This time, I am the composer. My heart creates the music and my body follows its rhythm. It ebbs and flows like the tide, pulling me in, pulling me under. I spin, whirl, jump, glide, gaining, gaining momentum as the music crescendos. My heart races and my lungs burn, adrenaline coursing through me. This must be what drugs feel like, the rush, the high, and I fully understand the addiction. Now comes the grand finish, the last burst of energy, my last chance to shine. I see my mother in the audience dabbing her face at the Kleenex, beaming her million watt smile. The crowd erupts in applause. As I open my eyes, the tears fade away and I find the seats empty once more. Row upon row of burgundy chairs are the sole witness to my last performance. The taste of copper fills my mouth and I try to catch my breath without showing my exhaustion. My vision is blurry and my face feels wet, so I brush a hand across my cheek to wipe the moisture away. I give my final curtsy like a debutante bounting, bowing for her queen, skin brushing the floor, back straight, head lowered, eyes fixed on a spot a few feet in front of me, just like they taught me. A solitary tear splatters on the wood. I squeeze my eyes shut and the curtain closes. Well, thank you, Megan. That was wonderful. So you had written flash fiction and for anyone who, and so for you, what was the appeal of flash fiction like versus something longer? What were the challenges, but also some of the incentives to do a flash fiction piece? So I actually wrote this for a class assignment originally, and it had to be short. I think the max was 500 words. And so it was just, you have to pick the type of story that can be told. It's almost more like a moment. If you think of the span of what that would have been for the person, it would have only been probably five minutes. And so it's just capturing a moment in time. That's the way that I looked at it. I think it's always nice that you can expand on like a moment of time to make it like very emotional and very heavy. And I think you did that beautifully. So thank, thank you, you for sharing. All right. Our next reader is Aurora Freewin. Aurora is a Bachelor of Arts student in her fourth year at the University of Alberta, studying English and creative writing. She is 21 years old, loves to learn, and is pursuing a career in writing. Aurora writes and reads in her free time and enjoys playing board games and RPGs such as Dungeons and Dragons. All right. Lena shifted between her wrists as she surveyed the subway traffic, dangling her legs off the edge of the alcove hidden from mortal eyes. She peeked at her watch, sighed, and took a sip of her soda, thankful for the sugary lemon scent that masked the concrete station's stale stench. Humans bustled on and off the crowded subways, 
posh suited men and women making calls, university students frantically moving about or dawdling with their friends. I don't know why we bother coming an hour, an hour early. Lena stood up and rubbed her legs that ached from sitting on the concrete for so long. Click, zzz. Lena heard from the portable radio. 266, this is 9M2, check in, over. Lena reached up and pressed talk. This is 266, checking in. Are you set up? Lena laid on the cool concrete in front of her station's rifle. Affirmative. She found Marina donning the cupid coat, black coat, and sitting on a bench with a magazine. Having fun flipping through nonsense, Lena smirked. It's better than staring at nothing, Marina replied. Besides, humans have some interesting tips for cooking. How is that interesting? You act like an old lady, Marina. At least I'm doing something worthwhile. You're probably staring up at the wall up there. Hey, I do some things. Lena's voice faltered. She slid her gaze to some piles of recent matches hidden in the corner. Right, Marina drawled. Like what? Nothing. A small bubble with butterflies formed in her chest. Lena, Marina stopped flipping through her magazine. You know you can trust me, right? I'm your partner. We're a team. She hesitated. Marina's been there for me. Maybe she would understand why? I've been reading some of the old case files again. Lena. Marina's gaze snapped upwards the alcove above the escalators. I can't help it. It's just sometimes I get this feeling and reading those files has been affecting your performance. The last couple matches didn't turn out because you kept thinking about the outcome. But the outcomes are not our problem. Things happen, and sometimes they don't work out. I don't want another black stain because you can't execute missions correctly. Lena paused and bowed her head as heat rose to her cheek. Thank you so much for reading. Aurora, like you and I have been in a few classes together. Like, yeah. <laughs> we go way back. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Other than, like, my nagging, what was it that really, like, made you want to submit to this anthology and to share your work? Honestly, I've been wanting to try and write something and put something out for a long time. I was thinking of putting something in the gateway, of just trying to put myself out there, but I was really struggling with even just going and writing something and building up confidence to say, maybe I can do this. And I thought maybe the anthology was would be kind of like the perfect thing to try and do something and try and get a story out there that I wanted to share. It's kind of where where I really wanted to try. And how do you feel now that it is out there? It's still kind of surreal and hard to imagine, <laughs> but it's really, really cool. And it's really neat to see something that's out there and actually in a book and not just, you know, on a laptop or something. It's really, it's really exciting. It's really good. I'm glad you feel that way. And I know what you mean about it being surreal. It does not feel real at all. But thank you so much for sharing. Let's get on to our next reader. Another old classmate of mine who I'm very excited to hear tonight. Hannah Brown is a bachelor science general student in her final year majoring in mathematics and minoring in biology. In her attempt to bridge the gap between many worlds, including art and science, she likes to write about science, math, memories, healing, social justice, cultural narratives, trauma, mental illness, and a sequence of poems curated for display in bathrooms. According to some, her entire personality is an interesting fact. Yeah, please give it up for Hannah Brown. Thank you. Okay, so this poem is called Vaseline. It sits in the cupboard under my grandma's bathroom sink where granddad says I can't go. It takes up all the space in a plastic jar with a blue lid, greasy on the outside. I'm not supposed to go in there. 
I opened the cupboard and reached over the soaps, cleaning supplies, and other naughty things. Grasping for the jar that is greasy to the touch, I plucked off that hospital gown blue lid. Such a lovely mystery inside, so smooth, so silky, like the fuel they put in jet engines. With tiny child's hands, I reached for that jar. I had barely removed the lid when I dropped it between scraped knees, dipped my fingers in, smeared it across my mouth, and let it melt. For something tasteless, Vaseline sure tastes like freedom, like resistance, against the autocratic rule of my mother's parents. Yeah, that was great. Hannah, like you and I actually were in Professor Dumont's class last Mm -hmm. term. And over the summer, we read at Lady Flower Gardens together. And I heard you read some more of your poetry. Also, you just got a poem published in Crepe and Pen. Is that correct? I did. Yeah. Yeah, Congratulations on that. And so for this poem, you had um, submitted it as a written thing and as a visual thing. But when I've heard you before, you've been more of a spoken word. So to you, what are the differences or things that you had to consider when making your poem for the anthology as something to be maybe read rather than spoken? That's a good question. I feel like you really helped with that in the editing process. It's really about how you use space, I think, and playing with italics a little bit. Um, (laughs) Mostly just the use of space and commas, like commas are kind of like a natural pause, being careful about where you break the lines to create a sense of rhythm. And then there are things you can do on the page that you can't when you're doing a spoken word, which is really cool. I think there are merits to each and your poem for anyone. This is why you need to like read the anthology and also why you should buy it because your poem is like visual and it plays with the page. And I think that's something that was, that was very neat. And I liked seeing you explore those routes when we were in our editing process. Thank you. Thanks for helping so much. That brings us to our final reader of the night. And it is Noor Azadine. And Noor is a writer and student at the University of Alberta. Currently in her second year of studies, Noor is working towards an undergraduate arts degree and hoping to transfer into the education program to major in social studies. The child of Lebanese immigrants, her work focuses on the trials of a first-generation Canadian and confronts themes of identity and social issues. Um, so my story is a nonfiction piece and it's called Lothony, which translates to homeland in English. It was the Paris of the Middle East the center of its own 21st century renaissance, they would say. The story of inspiration for many poets, writers, artists, singers, and songwriters. They would tell me of how it was destroyed and rebuilt seven times, a seraphic city favored by God himself. Sitting at the very edge of the Mediterranean, it is embraced by the rugged, snow-kissed mountain. The city itself was a melting pot of its inhabitants, shoving differences aside to form a comradeship amongst them. It was where Sadu Arauda Shaid first picked up a paintbrush and where Fedus chirped her first tune. Where the massive protests entered their second month with no sign of giving up. The New York Times credited the October 17th proposed tax on WhatsApp phone calls as the turning point, fueled by decades of corruption and economic mismanagement. Where wishes came true with the fall of Prime Minister Saad al-Hariri on the 29th of the same month, with growing hopes of toppling the sectarian political system. Where Ala Abu Fakhr a 39-year-old protester was shot in the head by an army officer, sparking widespread mourning for the revolution's very first martyr. I was admittedly guilty the first time I got there. The air was not that of my ancestors. It was muggy, as though it were trying to weigh me down. For my parents, it had been a weight off their chests. We had not yet gotten to our hometown, but they were content. This contentment, I would soon realize, 
made me a feeling I would never be fortunate enough to experience. While my lineage was rooted in the fertile soil of the Levant, I had grown up in the West. A child without a home is a lost child. The fact that I do not belong to a single land was a thought that could only leave me conflicted and distressed. I knew I did not feel completely accepted in Canada, and I would soon learn my own native land would make me feel the same. In Western Canada, I am an outsider. While carrying it on their weary backs, immigrants do not fit the standards of ever being suitable enough to live what is deemed the Canadian ideal. This meant that I, a Canadian-born child of immigrants, would never be granted this ideal. I, in turn, would be regarded as less. It was only a matter of time before I realized that Lebanon had a word for me, too. Ejnabi. I was this before I was my own name, to everyone from shop owners to cousins. I carried the citizenship they all held. I understood their language. I knew their politics. I listened to their songs. Yet somehow, I remained a foreigner, too Ejnabi for their way of life. Thank you, Noor. I really enjoy your piece. I think that the anthology is definitely better for having it included. From our side, I was very excited that you accepted our offer to put you in there. And so I wanted to know what thoughts were running through your head when you submitted it and then when you were accepted. I was actually hesitant about submitting it initially. I remember I think I handed it in a little bit late. It was like two in the morning. And um, I think I was a little bit scared because my writing is generally fiction, but to write about something so personal is a little scary when you haven't done it before. But my mom eventually pushed me and I ended up sending it in. I was really excited when it got accepted because this is like the first time I've ever published anything. I'm really glad to hear you say that. And I'm very glad that she did give you that push because I'm very happy that your piece is a part of it. So that's the reading period. But we're also going to move into an audience question period. So if there's anyone in the audience or anyone in the chat has a question for one of our execs or one of our authors, like feel free to put it in the chat and we'll try our best to answer it. I had a, I had a question for Brayden. When did your love for music start? I think, yeah, when I was a baby, like I kind of noticed it, but I think I remember vividly the first time hearing Rush when I was, I think, six or five or six. I put the CD into the CD player. So I do remember, I remember that. Um, I think that was the point where like, I found my dad's old Rush cassettes and I would like replace the Tarzan soundtrack, which is incredible, but all the Disney soundtracks from my little Toys R Us cassette player and actually started listening to like actual music recorded just for music's sake. So it would have been around six, six. And then when I was 14 or 15 is when I started playing an instrument. And then that's when I started writing lyrics and, uh, trying to tap into some sort of musical creative energy around that time period. For John, there will be a second anthology. Uh, again, all the support we get here will help fund that project because we do want to showcase more students. We want to have, you know, we, we want to put more faces out there as to when it will start. We're going to have to talk about that just considering that there's a pandemic happening right now and that this past year was a year of learning and knowing what our general workflow would be. We kind of need to time it a bit better. We also just got finished making one. I think we want a little bit of time to just like relax because all of us have been going hard for about the past three months. We'll, we'll get back to you, but this is definitely a thing that we want to continue and hopefully make an annual thing. Stay tuned. And yeah, tell your friends because the more support we get for the anthology, the easier it will be to produce the next one. Uh, I had another question actually for Megan because I know from our previous class, 
a lot of your stories were inspired by by song. Was uh, Death of a Star also inspired by song? Um, Death of a Star was more inspired by not because like, I never actually did what the person in the story did, but just like finishing. I remember the last time that I danced on stage and it was really sad. <laughs> and I just so I guess it was inspired by that. Although I do come for like more usually longer stories um, from song lyrics, it'll spur something and I'll be inspired to write something and then like I go from there. But that was the the first one that I wrote for the class. Uh, the one about the girl in the water. That one was inspired by um, a song by Radiohead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I remember. The lyrics was at the very top. It was cool. Yes. Yeah. And I do that a lot, but usually that's for, I do that a lot with short fiction instead of flash fiction. I have a question for the execs. What has been your favorite part of making the anthology? Can I be real here? Just learning the business side of things about like, oh, this is how you get books in the stores. Yeah. That was actually really interesting. The writing and editing, I have. I'm not saying I'm good. I've learned about it, but like, oh, this these they're like MOUs and stuff, and this is how you do book consignment deals with people. That was kind of cool. That was my Bus- favorite. A businessman before an artist. Oh wow. Okay. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm Being kidding. Bullied. Yeah, Shelby, Jake. I think getting the boss people around tell them you need to get this draft in, this draft in, <laughs> this time. <laughs> But it was great actually getting to work with other people because I feel like a lot of exec duties before and it's just been sort of like all sort of relegated to our to just the immediacy of our group. So it kind of felt nice to sort of branch out and actually get to collaborate with other people. You know what I mean? Outside of the club with their own sort with their own sort of creative flair. So it was really cool to get to see that. Probably the editing process and my work with the poets and writers added. I think that was the funnest part for me. Uh, what about you, Jake? I don't know. I, I suppose the editing process. It was just fun to just go into the people's works and just mangling it a little. I'm talking to you, Megan. <laughs> it was a lot of fun and see what I could get away with. For the better. For the better. Yeah, I don't think mangle is the right word to use there, Jake. I kind of is like you're taking something precious that's like oh here's my baby and then we're like surgeons like okay we'll fix it for you honey just cut it <laughs> oh, up real nice oh my gosh I think for me my favorite part of making the anthology was getting to work with classmates and writers that I truly do admire and and love their work and actually I saw one of our authors a while ago and I got to show her the anthology and her face just lit up when she saw her name in the table of contents section and she saw her work in the back of the book and she started tearing up tearing like out of happiness not because she's like it's ugly no because she was happy and she just kind of looked up and said like oh my god in a couple weeks I'm going to be a published author for the very first time that to me is what it's about getting to share really amazing student work with the world John asks, what have you learned from the groups funding this project? They might give us money next year and we should ask them again. Yeah, uh, that, <laughs> I think a lot of it too is just, it's understanding who's, like where you should go to for support. Well, I remember when I first started being an exec, a lot of people just went, oh yeah, go to the Students' Union. They'll give you money, 100%. I mean, you know, kind of, you kind of have to fight for it. But a, a lot of it is sort of just, combing through and seeing you know who's interested in writers or who's interested in like 
representing a lot of people that have a hard time getting out there and getting their voices heard. It's learning your networks. Megan asks, after you decided to make an anthology, what was the first step you took to figure out how to do it? And I mean, EJ would know more about this because you did more of like the, the legwork in the beginning. But the first step, I think, was finding editors. Like we put out a call for editors because we're like, listen, we need people to like help us edit the stuff that we get. So that was the first step. And then after we got our editors on board, we went into asking for submissions. And then once we got all the submissions done, we had to figure out a system of like, how are we going to accept things and how are we going to make this? And oh my God, we have to get a graphic designer for the book and how are we going to lay it out and who's going to take it and how is the editing process going to go? And oh my God, there's a pandemic. How do we do it during that? (laughs) So it was a lot of let's figure out this step first and then freak out when we get to the next step. Every step, there was a different freak out, but we figured it out along the way and got it done. In terms of what happened at the very, very beginning, we talked to a lot of people who had experience. The two first people we met was, um, the first were the, was Bolotai, the McEwen writing group, which we just, we chatted with them immediately. And we just asked, hey, how did y'all do this? What's like, what are your steps? And just getting a feel of what the, pro- like how the project felt. And the second was actually Red Deer has, I think they're still active. They have their own writing club that also does their own anthology. And I ended up meeting with their president who was now studying at the U of A. And then I just chatted up with him and asked him, hey, so what's the process like? And when you hear how other people do it, then you kind of get an idea of who else to talk to. It's a lot of talking and just getting people's advice and writing notes. I kind of didn't want to add to Jonathan's uh, question there about um, what we learned from the student grants. I'd say that our work here, like with this with this anthology especially, is very important. I mean, for the most of the majority of the work that I did um, with collecting the grants, that one of the biggest reasons that they had given us money was because there wasn't enough of the kind of kind of work out there for us under previously unpublished undergraduates available out there. So I feel like a lot of those student groups, as much as they are very much a very useful tool right for getting the money that we need in order to make projects happen like this in a way like hearing from them has also given us more of the confidence that yeah no all the blood sweat and tears that we're putting into this project is you know what I mean we, we need to make sure this happens and if we can if we can release another anthology all the all the more better right to make such a difference in some of our some of our young writers lives right you know what I mean in the writing career that is right because this is some people's first foray into getting published. So we got to have the confidence to keep going with this project because it's really important. Yeah, Hannah says that um, since we learned how to do this during a pandemic, we'll be really good at it when things are normal. I hope so. I, I hope the things transfer over. I think it will because a lot of our original like advertising was planned to be in person. You know, going around the classes, putting up posters and like doing the TVs all across campus and stuff. So yeah, 100% I think it will be. I had a question for our, our editors, or some of y'all who are still here, because I, you know, I kind of want to hear your voices. What was an interesting takeaway y'all had? What was your, your one important takeaway that you got from this project? I'm kind of curious. Uh, oh, yeah. So definitely a standardized editing process where, like, you got to edit a certain way with a certain system so that, A, we're all on the same page, and B, we don't get, like, confused along the way, because it certainly doesn't help when we're all can't get into the same room and and hash it out in person. Uh, Aisha says, I thought the collaboration aspect was a really interesting experience. 
like collaborating with both the other editors and the author. Well, I'm glad. I would like to push for more the idea of collaboration amongst writers, just because I know writing can be very personal and singular activity. But I know that like as you move towards like publication, it becomes more collaborative, especially if you have to work with an editor. You know, I, I'd like to promote that idea more amongst authors that are interested in like getting published. If I may offer my two cents, then just like the value of how much communication is just so important between like author and writer, because there were some times where the editors they would have opinions and they made changes when you couldn't meet in person, so you had to try and get in contact with them, and sometimes they were unavailable, and it, it made editing and writing a little bit more difficult just because of just how valuable and how important communication is in the editing process is like 100% taken for granted. Because like once you don't have a clear line of communication between the two parties, it's, the whole process becomes a lot harder. Megan also says it's interesting to see what changes other people make in your writing, also being open-minded to changes. And yeah, I think that's a huge part of it because something that you might not notice in your writing somebody else will having another pair of eyes look over it and something that you think is working maybe totally is not to somebody else and it's definitely interesting to see you, like your piece through somebody else's eyes thank you very very dearly from the bottom of all of our hearts for coming out and for our readers for reading we know that it isn't always easy to do so we really do appreciate it and you should all be very proud of yourself for the work that you've done and I know that I am. Everyone can have a good night. If you're interested in reading the pieces you heard tonight in their entirety, along with many other brilliant pieces of writing by University of Alberta students, be sure to pick up your copy of Liminal Space at the University of Alberta Bookstore, Glass Bookshop, and Audrey's Books, or as an ebook on our website. Links to all of these places will be listed below, but until next time, Thanks for listening to this episode of Crewcast.